This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy Woo! and sadness oh. and anger. Ah. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. Ah. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. Ah. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Welcome to I'm a Writer But. My guest today is Kathleen Hale. Kathleen Hale is a true crime author and TV writer based in Los Angeles. She is the author of four books. Her work has been featured in Vanity Fair, among other outlets. Hale's article on Gabby Petito was Vanity Fair's most read piece of 2022. It was optioned by Film Nation. Her fourth book, Slender Man, Online Obsession, Mental Illness, and the Violent Crime of Two Midwestern Girls, was optioned by Littleton Road Productions and sold to Peacock. Slenderman was nominated for an Edgar Prize. It also won the 2022 Midland Writers Award for nonfiction. Welcome, Kathleen. Hi, thanks so much for having me. This is exciting. I loved Slenderman so much. I love true crime in general, but this feels like a different beast. It's, oh. it's true crime, but it's so much more than that. Um, and I can't wait to talk to you about it. Oh, thank you. Will you read to us a little bit? Sure, yeah. I'll just um, I'll start chapter one. Um, all right. When Morgan Geyser was a toddler, ghosts would hug her and bite her. As she got older, colors melted down the walls of her bedroom like paint, and rainbows orbited her body. She heard voices that reverberated inside and outside of her skull, as if she were standing in front of a loud intercom system. One of the voices, named Maggie, became a dear friend. As Morgan learned to read, sentences floated around the pages of her storybooks like animated cartoons. Characters stepped from the screens of her favorite anime films, fully formed. She became friends with a boy named Sev who resembled an anime character with dark bangs swooping across huge opalescent gray eyes. When Morgan pressed her hand against Sev's chest, she felt his heartbeat. Sometimes he slept in her bed and Morgan woke up with his drool in her hair. At school, the visions and voices competed for Morgan's attention. She stared into a rainbow mist, struggling to focus as a teacher droned somewhere in the fog. In private, Morgan preferred to talk to Maggie, Sev, and the others out loud. It felt more intimate. But in public, she spoke to them with her mouth closed. Other children found this strange and shrank from her. And I guess I'll just stop there. That is a nice little tantalizing bit. <laughs> <laughs> um so like i mentioned it's it's um it's a book about the slender man crime and you mentioned this in your in your foreword or your author's note at the very beginning of the book that this crime is so misunderstood that a lot of people believe that the victim died as a result of her injuries um to yes girls obsessed with the the myth of slender man stabbed their friend um, and I, when I read that, I went, oh, because I thought she was dead too. 
Yes, it's such a common misconception. And I think it really speaks to a lot of the the mythology around this case. I mean, when people hear the word mythology, they probably think about the Slenderman mythology, but there's also a lot of um, you know, uh, mythology around uh, the the criminal case itself. And I think the most glaring of, example of that is this idea that um, Peyton Leutner died from her wounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it just, it speaks to a lot of uh, issues in, in the reporting of, uh, about this case. And, and, um, and I felt like I needed to mention that right off the bat, um, both because I wanted people to have that reaction that you just described. Um, maybe there's something, maybe there's more to this case than I, than I thought I knew. Um, as a mom, I also wanted to put readers at ease that this wasn't going to be, um, you know, a 100 page lead up to uh, a child dying. dying. Exactly. I didn't want that to be a barrier um, to entry for for parents. Um, And so I I just I wanted to, you know, get that out of the way in the first three pages. I, you know, I think it also goes toward my awareness of the crime um, was that the punishments were so harsh and the, and the media attention on it was so damning. I think that I allowed myself to think like, well, she must be dead, you know, obviously. Yeah. That's a really good point. I think that that's, that's um, one reason why a lot of people believe that she had not survived the attack because it's like, Oh, okay. Well, these two 12 year old girls, one of whom turned 12 two weeks ago and um, has a, di- a serious mental illness that has yet to be diagnosed, but was diagnosed very shortly after arrest, just a couple months after. Um, if they're being prosecuted in adult court and, you know, if the goal is to send them to a women's prison, then they must have committed murder. It must have at least been a murder, you know? Um, yeah. And uh, it was an attempted homicide. And I'm not trying to downplay the severity of, of that crime. Um, but uh, I think it, it it changes the way that people look at these two young assailants once they understand that they are not murderers. Mm-hmm. It does. And I think while I was reading this book, um, the weather was getting nicer and our our neighbor from a few houses down who's around my kid's age was coming over more and more and they were playing games about you know with bad guys and like they were like playing at annoying each other but then actually getting annoyed by each other and they were making like over the top threats you know like because they they hear these things and around them you know like they hear them in in tv shows that they watch or cartoons or whatever you know and um this little girl comes over and says hey uh your son has a giant knife (gasps) and i said wait what what are you talking about and i ran out in the backyard and my son my seven-year-old was just holding the biggest kitchen knife we have because he wanted to make, like, he wanted to play yeah. out this thing, you know, he wanted yeah. to be like taken seriously, even though he wasn't serious. And yeah. of course, you know, I give me that, what are you doing? And, and I thought like, that is childhood. That is, you yeah. do not understand the, you know, the, what you're doing even like the consequences yeah. of your actions, your brain can only go so far. Your brain is always <clears throat> developing and growing and forming. And it really helped me see this in a whole new light, which is mm-hmm. like, Oh my God, that is such a tender age. 12. Yeah. You know, like you're going through so many hormonal changes. You are mm-hmm. still a child. You're entering into this new phase. 
I don't understand how anyone could seriously look at these kids and say, yes, you did an adult crime. So you have to pay the adult time. It I know it's a very, it's a it very catchy saying, but, right? that, yes. but but just because it's catchy doesn't mean we should be uh, using it to, to guide our legal proceedings. Yeah, no, I'm so glad that you shared that story because I, I think, you know, you and I are both parents and um, I think, you know, uh, anyone who is a parent, if they're, if they're able to sort of push back past the denial of thinking that um, their children and all children are little adults and should be treated that way and past the denial of like, oh, my children are, you know, are perfectly well behaved. They're, you know, they're, they're perfect. Everything's perfect. Everything's fine. And actually uh, be present in some of the moments that, um, that show us how limited their, their cognitive abilities are. Um, I think that it would allow us all (laughs) to come and see this case in, in a different light. Um, There were so many parents involved in this case in the, in the courtroom from, you know, from the prosecutors to the judge, to the people who attended um, on behalf of, of the victim. And, uh, and, um, and there was, and I just kept having this sense like that they had forgotten what it was like to be a child, you know, mm-hmm. um, or they had, you know, sort of refused to relive it through their children's experience. And um, one of the first things I did after this case uh, broke in the news was three weeks later, I wrote about it for Vice Magazine. And there wasn't much to say about it or what used to be Vice Magazine. <laughs> By the time this comes out, people would be like, what is that? Um, but uh, but I did, there wasn't much to say about it because not much had been released yet. So what I did was I went around and I talked to teenagers, teenage girls specifically about the crime. And they seemed so much close they were so much closer to childhood like they could really remember what it had been like and they were like well you're living in a magic world is basically what they kept telling me like like there is no it's like you're not you're you're they kept being like well you're only 12 like Mm -hmm. you don't know the difference between reality and fantasy and they were able to go there in a way that the people that the adults who prosecuted this case were just not able to do Mm -hmm. um so anyway I love I love hearing stories that really like showcase like oh by the way my kid is not a psychopath uh future serial killer he's just (laughs) seven and wanted to have the best prop in the game and right. grabbed a knife, you know, exactly. and, and it just shows you how quickly something like that, if it's unattended, um, can turn into something just terrible. And, and so that was my feeling when I came to this case too. not like, what if my child were stabbed? I think that's a reaction that most people had when they read about this, but what if my child stabbed someone? <laughs> what, um, and then, she was taken away from me and I had to watch her be punished um, in to in the harshest possible uh, manner. And I was not allowed to touch her. You know, I was not allowed to help her get the medication she needed. My daughter was four months old at the time. I remember just like picking her up out of her crib and looking at her and she's like this little potato and being like, who are you? Like, what, what are you going to do? Like, mm-hmm. um, who are you going to be? You know? Mm-hmm. The ways that parents are asked to, you know, I've been thinking lately a lot about how unconditional love has this reputation of something that comes naturally to a parent, but it doesn't. It's a choice that you make over and over and over again to love your children unconditionally. Um, And I was struck by that with, uh, you know, Morgan's parents 
you know, just choosing to see her through this and love her so much and be so scared for her and how their, um, their agency was taken away immediately. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there it's, it, a lot of inferences to their, uh, being at fault for allowing her mental illness to go unchecked for allowing her access to these things on online. Um, but then never being allowed to make it right, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like they, they missed it and, um, they were not allowed to compensate for that at all once, her illness was diagnosed because she didn't belong to them anymore. She belonged to the state of Wisconsin. Um, that, that was, that was horrifying to watch. And, and it happens to all parents of, um, you know, infamous, uh, violent assailants. Um, there's a, a book Columbine by Dave Cohen. It's one of my favorite nonfiction books. It really inspired me for this one. And he talks about, um, the, parents of Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold and what happened to them in the wake of their son's uh, crime and suicide. And I mean, you can imagine, maybe, maybe we can't imagine, maybe it's unimaginable, but your, your son is the shooter at Columbine and then he's dead. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you process that? And you can't bury him because there's a good chance that his grave will be desecrated as soon as he's put in the ground um you have to have a secret funeral service um your life will never be the same again you're blamed as a proxy because he's not there to blame everyone blames you instead so um dave talked a lot about the the psychology of of that kind of parenthood and and what it's like and i saw that play out uh, with Matt and Angie too. Mm-hmm. So your first access to the case was this Vice article. Did you pitch that, or was it assigned to you? Like, were you at the very beginning like, I got to write about this? <laughs> I pitched it. I was in Wisconsin at the time, and I really wanted to. I hadn't started covering crime yet at all, but I had this instinct to walk the crime scene before it was taken away. And what I mean by that is that in Wisconsin, there's a history of knocking down buildings and tearing down woods when bad things happen in them. Really? Um, yeah. So like the, in the Dahmer case. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just, they tore down the building. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know necessarily that any of his neighbors wanted to live there anymore, but I don't know if they were asked whether they wanted their building to be torn down the plan was to make a memorial garden that never happened and of course I don't know why I sort of anticipated this but it ended up happening in the Slenderman case too only a couple months after the crime the woods were raised the woods where this crime occurred and uh they it was ostensibly for uh for building development but that has never happened. So I, I'm glad I got to see it because it really gave me a sense of what happened in there. And it gave me a deeper sense of the community. I, I'm familiar with Wisconsin culture because I was born and raised there. Um, but Waukesha is its own sort of haven. 
And when I went there three weeks after the crime, the ditches were sort of lined with offerings, kind of like the ones you saw outside of the palace after Diana's death, like, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, teddy bears and um, poster boards. And it really looked as though Peyton Leutner had died. Again, even, even the locals seemed to have I don't know how many of them, they might've all known that she was alive, but it looked like a vigil. It looked like someone Mm -hmm. was being, someone's death was being commemorated and people were even selling candles outside the, at the end of their driveways. Um, So I, I, it really felt like a death had occurred and I'm glad that I uh, created a professional excuse to, to be there during that time. There's something so human about this tendency we have to make ourselves a part of something major Mm -hmm. um like in that way like i'm gonna go make an offering at the ditch i'm gonna i'm gonna sell candles you know i'm gonna get really really angry about this um i'm you know this this horrible thing that i i don't know the details of right like there's something so Mm -hmm. i I see it again and again that people just want to be a part of it Mm -hmm. maybe i'm talking about myself because at the beginning of this, I said, I love true crime, um, <laughs> but that's one of the reasons I love true crime is to read about these real people, you know, handling or not handling this terrible thing, you know, like, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. What do you think it was for you when you heard about this crime that, that drew you to it? So I was, I, I was drawn to it more and more deeply in in waves over time uh at first when i covered it for vice i was interested in it for the same reason i think everybody was it it was it was wild it was it was um it was heavenly creatures you know it was leopold oh my god yes it was it was leopold and Loeb. like it was it was it was a it, it was a murder, a murder in some people's minds. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet it wasn't. And it could only have happened in 2014. So I was fascinated with it on that level. I was fascinated with it coming from Wisconsin, um, being so close to it, knowing Waukesha. And then it sort of fell away f- for a while for me because I kept expecting someone to sort of take my angle on it just because, I mean, it was being covered. It was the, the news was so saturated with it that I didn't think that I could, I didn't think I could stake my (laughs) flag on it in any kind of real way. And I also Mm -hmm. didn't have really at at that time, any professional um, connections that would have allowed me to report on it in a serious way. Um, and at that time I was basically just like working on pitches and deadlines and I wasn't doing a lot of speculative work. So it sort of slipped from my mind. And then, um, and then, uh, later that same year in 2014, in the fall, I was canceled. I was publicly canceled. There was no word for it at the time. Uh, like in 2015, um, John Ronson came out with a book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And publicly shamed is kind of like the only, that was then a new word. And Mm -hmm. so I was canceled. And at the time I was writing young adult novels. So that was really my focus. Um, And then, you know, I sort of lost that career 
with my cancellation by way of my cancellation and the cancellation was so hard for me personally that I ended up checking myself into a uh, psychiatric hospital in Wisconsin in Wisconsin Um, I wanted to go home I was at the time I was living in Toronto because my now husband was shooting a show there so I went home stayed there for two weeks and it gave me a really um, unique insight into mental health care in the United States and how privileged I am compared to the majority of other people and how mental health care is kind of reserved for uh, for wealthy individuals in our country and how everybody else is just fucked. Mm-hmm. And so by then, Morgan Geyser had received an early onset uh, childhood schizophrenia diagnosis. It's the rarest form of one of the rarest, most severe mental illnesses known to man. And she had been hospitalized. And, um, and then the, then I got, then I got married and, um, (laughs) and, and escaped my cancellation or tried to flee it, uh, Mm -hmm. by moving to Los Angeles, completely reinvented, um, my career and got into journalism. And, um, the sort of tipping point for me was covering, the Rodin family massacre. It's called the Pike County family massacre in Ohio. I covered mm-hmm. it for a publication called Hazlitt. And I was, I it kind of felt like coming home. It was a very sad story and I was there for a little while. And, but um, it just, it, it fit into, I had sort of already been dealing with murder stories prior to that. My young adult novels were murder mysteries. Um, but I, had never done true crime before. And once I did it, I was like, this is just, this is the fit, this fits. Wow. Um, and so after writing that piece, I wanted to cover the Slenderman um, story for, um, for a publication. And I ended up initially covering it for the guardian. Um, I had done a couple pieces with them before and I came away from this. I wanted to cover Morgan's um, disposition hearing, essentially her sentencing, and um, and but what I handed into them, they said that they couldn't publish because they said it was too compassionate toward Morgan, <gasps> and they and they didn't want to get canceled. I oh my think. god! Um, and so that's when I knew that I had something unique, and it had been. It had been three going on four years by then since the crime and still no one had taken my angle, which is why is my home state of Wisconsin prosecuting a mentally ill child as an adult? I mean, it's pretty simple. Um, And like what has happened in our uh, healthcare system and in our, in our prison system and our justice system to, to create this situation. And so I was like, okay, it's been years and no one's taking this. So I'm going to, I'm going to go after it. And I chased, I found Angie Morgan's mom through, um, through Irene Taylor Brodsky, the director of this 2015 Slenderman documentary. And she, Angie and I started talking. She trusted me. I was honored by that. And she and I talked a lot over the course of like six months while I wrote this piece and I eventually published it again on Hazlitt, this um, small literary site. 
And then um, I sold the piece as a book and Angie introduced me to her daughter, Morgan Geyser. And that was five years ago. And the book took me five years. And that's sort of how I, how I got there. Amazing. I, I was so struck by the extent of your research and, you know, you had access to Morgan and her family, but um, not Anissa and not Peyton. Am I correct in that and remembering that? Yes. Yes. So, but you had their words that were publicly available. Um, and it's so thorough and, and it seems effortless as, you know, as someone reading through it, the timeline, the way things fall into place, the points that you're making. And I know that is not an effortless task. How did you, how did you manage all of that research? Um, first of all, thank you. Um, so it was, it was, uh, I basically was learning how to write a true crime book while I was writing this true crime book. And I finally figured it out by the end, mm-hmm. but part of figuring it out meant writing an entire draft that that I threw away uh it it was 686 pages long what and yeah (laughs) yes and all um, my books together don't equal 686 pages (laughs) well guess what no one wants to read 686 pages so this this big daddy draft needed to be cut way down and in that particular draft, I was I was sort of like experimental with time um, and moving around and flashbacks and things like that. And what I realized when I finished it, you know, with the help of my editor, um, Peter Blackstock, uh, I realized that the story itself is so strange that you need to tell it in in the consecutive order you mm-hmm. can't j- jump around because people are going to have a hard enough time wrapping their heads around what happened without trying to keep track of of what you're we're we're in um like this isn't slaughterhouse five kathleen like just <laughs> you know sit down relax like take a breather um it's probably hard and- to shake off those literary impulses though after two books it right is. It is. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah. And in this one, I had to really nail a dispassionate tone, even though I was very, very passionate about a lot of the subjects. I'm so glad you said that because that's, that was another thing I wanted to ask you about. So yes, please say more. (laughs) I was super passionate about a bunch of the issues in this book, you know, mental health care from a personal place. I was passionate about these things, the role of the internet, the, what can happen online, how it makes us, how it kind of lowers our empathy to operate in that space and the way that the internet was going after this family and all that. I, I and But I knew that no one was going to listen to me because of how politicized a lot of these issues were. Mm-hmm. Um, unless I sounded dispassionate, unless I was sounded like I was laying out the facts for them to, to take as they would and not being pedantic. Um, because as a reader, that's the, that's how, how you lose me is if you're trying to teach me something. So all I was allowed to do, or all I allowed myself to do in subsequent drafts was to put the facts in order in the, in, and in order to tell a story that was the story that from, from sort of my, uh, perspective on other people's perspectives, um, my, my points of view, my beliefs are in the book, 
but they're but they're in they're laid in on facts you know it's a factual accounting and I just happened to choose the the facts that I thought were the most um evocative of what I was trying to say about uh our country um our culture and our you know our treatment of of children in in the justice system so and also trying to keep it you know entertaining and not to um deepen those ancillary issues so to answer your question about research i went down so many paths with research and ended up throwing a lot of them away because i really wanted the narrative to stay focused on uh morgan's point of view i wanted it to feel novelistic in terms of the the human stories and the relationships that were unfolding and the coming of age story that was front and center i wanted to keep that front and center but in order to tell that story accurately i needed to do so many years of research just because i i'm not super well educated on american history american politics all these issues that were at play in the central story so i would need to read a bunch of books, you know, Nixon land, like all of Mm. these political books. And then I would need to get in touch with experts to explain parts of those, those stories to me so that I could understand them. I talked to doctors, I talked to juvenile justice advocates, I talked to historians, I talked to uh, political experts. um, And I talked to so many mothers of mentally ill children uh, who had committed crimes and none of their stories made it in. And I thought from in the first draft, they were all in there. So I had to really um, be aware of the reader's uh, bandwidth in in the subsequent drafts. How much, how many digressions into um into context and research can 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 one mind hold while they're while they're piecing together this story uh I didn't want it to be bloated and I had to do a lot of killing my darlings or whatever in terms of like wait a second I spent like weeks on that oh it doesn't fit sorry you know out the window but I think it was it was all really helpful for me even if when it didn't make it into the book I mean I even I had a long correspondence with Morgan's prison boyfriend with her friend Levi who's also in prison I was writing to prisoners I have like piles and piles of correspondence um and and those things didn't necessarily make it into the book but uh it was definitely a lesson in allow yourself to do all the research that you need to do um but don't shove it all in there because you'll you know you'll ruin the story if you do were you ever thinking to yourself, you know, you're doing all these years of research, were you ever get, just getting fed up and just wanting to write the thing? Or did it feel natural and like, you know, the way that it should have been unfolding? It felt natural. It felt exciting. Every bit of research, every interview, every time I sat down. I mean, of course, there were frustrating moments, like when I finished a 680 page draft and I had to and I knew or I, I challenged myself to start over <laughs> oh my God. from the very beginning um that like but but the research was always like heady it was always just like a rush like I I I don't know why but I guess what it taught me is that if I'm ever going to write a true crime book again I need to 
one way to to know if it's the right fit is are am I interested in literally every level of this story um yeah can I hold my attention for five years it's such a long time I mean we have kids and five years of their lives is like most of their lives I know (laughs) right yeah 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 it's a lot why do you think we're so I mean I guess I can see it both ways this is this is more of a you know, a niche question, but, um, Morgan had the same judge over and over and over again. And it made me think of the West Memphis three who had the same judge over and over and over again. And at a certain point, it's like, this person cannot be unbiased anymore. It's just human. It's not that this person is a bad person, (laughs) but this person, you know, and, and like you did great, like, um, putting his quotes in there where he's sort of like openly grappling a little bit with, you know, his decision not to uh, grant various appeals. And usually it's like, my voters just won't let me do it. But it's at a certain point, it's like, you gotta, we gotta get a different person looking at this, right? (laughs) Yeah, no, it's really wild. I mean, so many things about the justice system that I learned shocked me when I was researching this, but, but yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a broken system of judgment where we keep handing the same case back to the same person because we're asking if they're going to if they're going to make a decision now the third third time around that is at odds with their decision the first time around it's basically they have to admit that they were wrong right. it's this it's an admission of of fault um and most people don't want to do that it goes against human nature uh to admit that you were wrong in something that is so <laughs> monumental. So, yeah, I mean, I just, ta- I talked to Morgan still. I just talked to her this morning. Oh my she hasn't, she has another release hearing coming up and it's going to be the same judge. Um, How that just makes no sense. And I mean, he's, I'm sorry if I'm misremembering this, but he's an elected judge, right? Yes. And yeah. Wisconsin judges are elected, not in every state, but that's another thing that, that just shouldn't happen. I mean, it's kind of a no brainer. Um, you don't have to be a, a legal expert to say that, that, that there's problems with that. He's a politician. Right. Once someone is elected, they're a politician. They're not an unbiased uh, official. Uh, and it's, it's just, it's completely shocking. I found myself thinking um, after the Wisconsin Supreme court flipped to um, Democrat, thinking oh maybe this is good for Morgan (laughs) (laughs) I I hope so there's a lot of stuff that's going to come out at our next hearing that I hope that Judge Boren or whatever judge replaces him by then hopefully um that they'll find persuasive but it's it's an extremely conservative county Mm -hmm. uh and regardless of the way that Wisconsin might be shifting politically as a whole things are not changing in Waukesha Wisconsin mm-hmm. yeah probably they're probably doubling down in the face of change elsewhere in Wisconsin right yes that's how it goes um was there anything that sort of took you by surprise as you were writing this book so many things <laughs> <laughs> what a loaded question uh, <laughs> um Coming to understand the history of mental health care in 
America was very shocking to me. I mean, the the minimum age of adult prosecution obviously was extremely shocking to me as well and how that came about and the history of that with the super predator laws mm-hmm. and the lasting effects of this conspiracy theory, this super predator conspiracy theory on United States <laughs> like it, the justice system has been forever changed by this fake theory. Mm-hmm. Um and although juvenile justice advocates have had some success raising the minimum age of adult prosecution in states like Wisconsin, such as Michigan, which is very similar in many ways, they can't move the dial in Wisconsin. And I think that that speaks to the culture there, um, which I kind of came to understand on a deeper level while writing this book. Um, I guess I was, you know, I was shocked by the culture of silence in Wisconsin and how it extends around issues of mental illness. Although that was, that was kind of liberating for me as well, because it vindicated a lot of my experiences growing up in that state. Um, But, and, and I guess the other thing that shocked me was how likable Morgan Geyser is. Mm. Um, how funny and sweet and young um, and spending time with her and how much I came to care about her as a person. Um, And yeah, I mean, those are the things that spring to mind, but so many moments in my research where I went, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah. What about the, the experience of writing it? Was there anything that you you had to push through or any sort of hurdle that you had to, aside from rewriting an entire 680 page manuscript, you know, like at the page level, was there anything that you were drawing on your literary background for? Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that springs to mind is that in early drafts, I was in the book. I was uh, talking to Morgan and I think that that came just from practice because I, came of age as a writer um, during the personal essay internet writing craze. Mm -hmm. And so I made money by putting myself in weird situations and writing embarrassing stories about myself. And so it was my instinct to be in this story too. And what was really liberating for me was realizing that I was actually like, this is an understatement, but the least interesting thing about this story by far. (laughs) And like, I should be nowhere near it because inserting myself seems to suggest that my experience is on par with the experience of the characters that I'm displaying. Mm. And that's just not true. And it's almost offensive, you know, so taking myself out of that was sort of was liberating and sort of deconstructing uh, the ways I'd been taught to write online Mm -hmm. and getting back to uh, a sort of more formal modus operandi. Uh, And, um, and then I guess some other things, I don't know. Um, That was, that was one big thing is unlearning that type of writing and sort of finally extricating myself from it. I don't think I ever want to write about myself again, honestly. I, I just want to write about other people. Um, yeah. It really adds to the um, the integrity of the book as well. Because it's like you say, like, <clears throat> like there might be, there's definitely an agenda in the book and it's correct. <laughs> but, but you sort of removing yourself from it and just giving us the facts the way that you do. And it is so incredibly detailed and complete. 
and, you know, right up to the crime itself, which is painstaking, um, literally. And um, (laughs) (laughs) um, removing yourself from it is not that I wouldn't love to also read, you know, you, you relating it to that moment in your life when you checked yourself into a mental health facility because of what was happening in your life is very interesting to me. Um, But it, it, it adds to almost like the, the absolute like correctness of the book, in my opinion. Thank you. That's, that's nice of you to say. Um, I definitely was aware of maintaining credibility uh, throughout. I was actually really surprised to learn that publishing houses don't fact check nonfiction. That's a hundred percent on the author. Oh my God. So um, I, I paid quite a lot of money from my advance to have this professionally fact checked twice after I had done it myself. Um, just because I felt like, I don't know, I guess on some level, I didn't trust myself after so many years of, um, uh, you know, making up stuff for my YA novels. Like I'm a storyteller, you know, I'm not a, a, re- a professional researcher. And so I worried that I might've embellished in places and I really wanted to make sure that I hadn't done that. And so it's, it's nice to, to hear that that came across. And that's wild too, because that's exactly what happened with this case in general is that people's imagination sort of embellished. And that's yes. why there's so much misinformation and, and misunderstanding about what actually happened in, a, in its aftermath. Yes. Yeah. The, the, the game of telephone that ensued after this crime in terms of the reporting was was really wild to to see. I mean, I read every single article, ten, ten, thousands of articles about this case, and they were all so similar to each other because it unfolded during a time that it was like, you know, now BuzzFeed has folded, Vice has folded. I think we're going to see more publications folding. But in 2014, there was the first wave, that was the first wave of sort of like uh, things falling apart because people were, trying to monetize free content. And so jobs were being slashed, budgets were being slashed. Journalists didn't have a slush fund to pay for court documents, for instance. And so the Bruce Fialmetti, the crime reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, whose work was recapitulated by other publications, he was sitting in court with a, with a notepad and a pencil. That's how he was reporting, old school. Wow. And the, the the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel didn't have money for him to pay. Um, how much was it? Sometimes it was a dollar twenty five a page. Sometimes it was five dollars a page. If Oof. I was the first person, because I was the first person to request the documents, so the court reporter would have to return to her notes from her like basement and type them up. Like they weren't there. They didn't exist. So he was just going based on what was in court, wasn't doing any follow-up interviews. And I don't begrudge him that. Like He didn't have the time or money. Like mm-hmm. the, Nobody did. And so then every publication was just pulling from his work, pulling the most salacious stuff. And what, in, what ended up living was this uh, story of, you know, two girls lured their friend, not even two girls. It was always like two assail- assailants or two mm-hmm. young women. Mm-hmm. Peyton Leutner was the little girl and Morgan and Anissa were they sounded like grown-up criminals the way that it was talked about into the woods and stabbed stabbed her 19 times to honor Slenderman. and it fell very neatly into this ongoing discussion about the evils of screen time and that's what people wanted to talk about and nobody had the money to dig any deeper 
And um, I was lucky that I, I was able to um, use some of my advance to pay for all these court documents. It costs so much money. I can't even believe it. Um, but I found stuff in there that if it, if it had been included in early reporting, I think would have changed the tide of conversation, but just where it was happening and when it was happening in our, in our history, um, it, it really diluted the veracity of the, of the early storytelling around this case. We do it again and again. I mean, it, I mentioned the West Memphis three and then the satanic panic. I mean, we, we fall for these things over and over and over again and, and they're kids. And then, and then years later we all go, Oh shit, they were kids, you know, like Mm -hmm. we have to fix this. And then it happens again. And we all, you know, talk about the evils of screen time or the evils of video games or the evils of whatever. Um, But you do such a great job of showing that Morgan had a very loving home and, you know, she just had, has, a very severe mental illness and that's a tragedy. Um, and the, the fact that it hasn't been, you know, that it wasn't properly treated for so long made it worse and worse and worse. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I guess, you know, you asked about the things that shocked me. That was one thing is, is sort of realizing that childhood is its own mental illness, like setting aside any uh, diagnoses that one person, you, you don't have to have a mental health diagnosis when you're 10 or 12 years old you're not operating on all cylinders and um you know you you don't have to have psychosis or hallucinations to live in a magical imaginary world Mm -hmm. and um it just it shocked me i guess to get up to date up to speed on all the research about the human brain and what it looks like uh, until the age of 25 and it's it's pretty crazy I mean when you're 12 15 16 17 18 19 even 20 years old you don't really think you can die you wow. don't have the understanding of mortality um you know you kind of think that you're like living in a movie <laughs> Like when you listen to music, you're in a scene in your own movie, like mm-hmm. it, and and you're just making terrible decisions all the time. Um, and yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's been shown you can look at an MRI and you can look at a child's brain and you can see where they're operating from, and it's it's not from a place of executive functioning. It's um, it's a completely different brain. Yeah, I mean, I think you know we were kind of talking earlier about how hard it is to have small children. And my husband and I sometimes just say to ourselves, their brains aren't fully formed till they're 25. Their brains aren't fully formed till they're 25, (laughs) you know? And that is definitely something my parents didn't understand. I know that for a fact, I mentioned it to my father not too long ago. And he was like, well, we didn't know any of that, you know, like it's, it's, it's not widely understood, I think. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Like sometimes I'll think that my eldest daughter who just turned six is ignoring me or like, um, try, trying to like hurt my feelings or upset, upset me because I'm projecting like sort of adult stuff onto her. Right. Oh and my god. As, yes. As I, as I sort of like interrogate what's happening, I'm like, Una, did you hear me? And it's like, no, she didn't hear me because she right now she's a cat in outer, <laughs> exactly. like in outer space. Like, <laughs> and that's and yeah, she she it's just it's just. 
children should not be prosecuted. No, 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 absolutely. Um, it's, it does the opposite of what you want it to do. We're, you know, if we're supposed to be a rehabilitative society, which we haven't been maybe ever, um, that's not going to do anything toward rehabilitating. And I think also, you know, parents nurture that magic in a variety Mm -hmm. of ways because it's innocence, right? It's childhood. We want that childhood to linger. We want the magic of childhood to imprint because grown-uphood lasts a really long time. <laughs> I keep yeah. telling my kids, like, you're a kid for a very, very small blip. So be a kid, you know? But we we encourage that magic. We encourage the imagination and the play and the tooth fairy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then we don't understand that it's it's ongoing. It's yeah, you know, that's their brain. Yeah. What about how it has felt to to have the book out in the world? Did anything surprise you there? What does it feel like to have this book out? Um, I mean, it was really scary. Publication's always really scary for me, more so post-cancellation. I think I was really relieved to see that people were talking about the book Mm -hmm. and not talking about me. Mm -hmm. Um, And... So that was very freeing um, to be able to talk about the issues at the heart of the book and not necessarily, I mean, I I fielded questions definitely about my cancellation, but it was not the focus of of what people were wanting to to write about um, and wanting to know from me and interviews and stuff around publication. And I was just so moved that so many people seemed to be reviewing this case from Morgan Geyser's point of view because I just really want people to know her name. Um, She looks like an adult now, but she wasn't prosecuted. When she was prosecuted as when she was only 12 years old, only just 12, she had, you know, she'd just gotten her first period and she really shouldn't be where she is right now. Um, and I just, I, so I just, I would love if, if she were on people's radar and I, it just means a lot to me that when people read this book, they come away feeling compassion for her. Um, and yeah. And I mean, I think all three of these girls in this case deserve or compassion. Um, but I really was, was thrilled to see that people were people who had thought that Bella had been Peyton had been murdered. Um, people who thought that Morgan was evil, the fact that they came around to seeing this case from a different angle really meant a lot to me. I mean, it's truly amazing. I, you know, almost from the jump, I was like, I, I accepted that I didn't know what I thought I knew about the case because I trusted your voice so much. And, um, you know, by the end I was, you know, ranting and raving around my house about it. And, you know, I have a 10 year old and my, my point of view is if you're old enough to ask a question, you're old enough to get the answer. Um, and so he had lots of questions about this book and I'm thinking as I'm talking to him about it, like in two years, that could have been him, you know, and he Mm -hmm. is, you know, he's comes up to my elbow, you know, a little over my elbow, but he's a kid, you know, it's just, it makes absolutely no sense. If we want 
if we want positive change, then why don't we enact positive change? Why is it all punitive? Mm-hmm. Doesn't make yeah. any sense. It doesn't make any sense. I agree. <laughs> the ending shook me. Absolutely shook me. I I um, am in awe of how you decided to end the book. Um, can you say a little bit about that choice? Yeah. Um, so I wasn't really sure how this book was going to end. And now that you say that, I'm trying to remember what the previous endings were. I think that, yeah. So the previous endings that I had were, were not as, not as good and they were a little bit, um, flowery and pedantic and sort of hard to pinpoint what the message was and then I got a call from Morgan and it had been I think a full year since we had spoken because um when Morgan started talking to me about more personal things about her case you know we were being monitored by guards and things and it was their job to report to our doctors and Anyway, next thing I knew after Morgan sort of gave gave me this huge piece of information, I was barred from visiting. I was I wasn't allowed to be on the the mental health campus anymore, and they wouldn't tell me why. And uh, Morgan was only sixteen at the time, and so she was sort of frightened into not contacting me I think they like told her she wasn't allowed to because the the institution was getting a lot of press about these strange deaths that had been happening in the hospital Mm. um negligence rapes things of that nature and once they sort of realized that I was a journalist not that I hid that but once I think the conversations between me and Morgan became more like interviewee they got spooked and so she didn't phone me until her 18th birthday so I guess it was actually two years oh my gosh when so when they could no longer govern her life Mm -hmm. you know in terms of who are you going to talk to on the phone all that other stuff and she said this thing to me that really shook me and it was just you know she had run into Anissa in the hallway and all of the stuff that's in the book and they had finally seen each other after years and years and years in the same mental health institution and you know they waved to each other they tried to be cordial they didn't speak because their cases are ongoing or were at the time and Morgan said to me before her 10 minute timer ran out she said we're grown-ups now and I I was just I was really I don't know it just it almost made me cry and I thought okay that's that's the end is her feeling like a grown-up we were back in touch then and I got all this new information basically from the time of her 18th birthday over the next few months that's when I wrote the ending because she was I was I got to you know I got to hear about her life again what she was going through um and it was all so magical and she had sort of found her own happy ending and I realized that I really wanted the book to end in a place of optimism for her and not just be a straight up tragedy and I think the way that it ends is the only way that it could end for Morgan happily which is in her own a world of her own creation yeah um Mm -hmm. where she feels like a grown-up she feels like the grown-up that she was prosecuted as and of course 
in our eyes, she's still not a grown up at the end of this book. But the important thing, I think, narratively, is that she feels that she is. Mm-hmm. Has she read Slenderman? No, um, she doesn't want to. I don't want her to. Her, I mean, she, I, I, no, Any anything related to her crime in the first 100 pages, as you said, are like a painstaking lead up to the crime kind of minute by minute um, is hugely re-traumatizing for her. Yeah, I mean, she has, she has major PTSD and I think a lot of people would bristle hearing that because it's like, well... What about what about Peyton's PTSD? Yes, they both have PTSD. You know, mm-hmm. like it's um, Morgan victimized Bella, and then Morgan was victimized by the legal system, and she barely remembers what she did. And what she does remember is very, very scary. And you can imagine the horror of kind of waking up in a psychiatric institute, more or less, because your mind was on fire and now it's not. Is how it was sort of described to me. And then, you know, being told while you're, why you're there and why you can't get out. Um, she doesn't want anything to do with the, she, I mean, she, she knew I was writing a book. She was supportive of that. She wanted me to do it. She wanted to participate. But I think that she knows herself and her, her current condition well enough to not want to engage with it, which I agree knowing mm-hmm. her is probably the most healthy approach. Mm-hmm. What about Angie and Matt? Um. Matt actually passed away a couple of weeks ago. Oh my gosh. Um, I know. Sorry to hear it's, that. It's very, very sad. Um, uh, he had a heart condition um, and passed away in his uh, sleep, as far as I understand. Mm. Um, Angie, I think, was planning to read the book and never did, but she, um, but, but her, but her friends have have read it and liked it. And that was a huge relief for me. I mean, you talk about like what struck me about the publication. For me, I was the most afraid of like selfishly, I, I bring up the cancellation stuff, but like I was the most afraid of what Angie, Matt, and anyone close to their family would think mm-hmm. because I, no one likes being written about, but, um, and I know that, um, from both sides I know that the people I've written about have often been unhappy with what I've written about them because it's just hard to be written about and I've also been in that position where it I've been written about and it's very hard to be written about um so I was sort of braced for some kind of fallout with them emotional fallout which would have been really hard for for me because I really came to care for them and I came to care about what they think and I really wanted to present something that they could read and feel good about and at the same time, I wanted to tell the truth. So it was this awful, weird balancing act. And I think the biggest relief to me was that they were supportive of the final product, even if they weren't like sitting in bed reading it. Mm-hmm. And the, and that the people who knew them were like, this is this is good. This is this is this is fine. You know, this is not this is not harmful to to people who have already endured so much pain. Mm-hmm. It absolutely gives them so much grace and understanding and also clear eyes on their lives and, you know, what happened. And um, I just want to thank you so much for coming on and talking to me about it. This, I I loved it. It's Slender Man, Online Obsession, Mental Illness, and the Violent Crime of Two Midwestern Girls by Kathleen Hale. It's an incredible book, an incredible feat of journalism. I recommend it um, 
merely because it's it's informative, like Kathleen was saying, on what's actually happening in our justice system and and the ways in which it needs to be improved. Um, so thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, Kathleen. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Lindsay. I had such a great time talking to you.